All right, thank you everybody for coming. I really appreciate it. As always, Bezer Hashem, we're up to a new Chumash, a new Parsha, and a uh, special welcome to our friend Dovi who's here. Hope to see you more often. And thank you everybody who's listening on the podcast. Tonight's year is dedicated to Nishmas, a very hush of a woman who passed away, unfortunately, at a young age last week in Manchester, England, a close friend of my sister, Sarit Rachel Bas Yitzchak David. Ebishta should help that any chizuk that comes out of the shir should be as chus for an aliyah for her neshama, and she should be a good beta for all those who knew her, family and friends. And for Gans Klal Yisrael, we should only hear besuras toivus and good news. You know, speaking about the news, it feels like it's deja vu all over again. We've been here before. All you hear about is the numbers, the alarming numbers going up and up and up, and. If it's, uh, you get your news just from the mainstream media, then you, know, you would think that the world is falling apart. But Baruch Hashem, we're in a much better place than we were a year and a half ago. Baruch Hashem, there's the vaccine that's available, and even if you don't believe in the vaccine, there's treatment that are available. And the shuls are open. And Baruch Hashem, the shuls are open, that's right. And uh, yesterday there was very good news that there's actually a, a, a new medicine, yeah, pills, by, uh, that was approved by the FDA by, uh, by Pfizer. That'll be used for the treating COVID. So uh, hopefully, all the tumult will go down very soon, and you know all this will be a thing of the past. Even if COVID doesn't go away, but at least it'll be okay. You know, it's like getting getting the flu. You know, getting a virus. You take the medicine, and you're back on your feet within a few days. Parshas Shmai starts off. Very famous Balaturim. And these words. He says that it's a Rosh Tevis. Ve'ele, vav alef lamed hei, v'chayev adam likhoiz ha-parsha, shmois, shin mem, vav tav, shnayim yikra v'echa targum. B'nei, is, be'ez nun yud, b'kol noim yosha, you say shnayim yikra v'echa targum in a nice voice, and then Yisrael, yud, sin, reish alef lamed, is yichye shanim rabois, aruchim, li'oylam, he's going to be zeiche, tarichus yonim v'shonim, by reading the Parsha Shnai Mikra Vechatargum. And of course, the question is if this is such an important thing, which it is, of course, and Halacha Shechanach brings it down as well, that a person should try to reach Shnai Mikra Vechatargum every week, then why is the Remez only in Parsha Shemais all the way here in the New Chumash? Why wasn't it brought up even earlier? So I saw a very nice shot that there's something here in the Targum that's actually unique and a different translation than it is in Chumash Bereshis. What do I mean? The word Ivri, which is a reference to Klal Yisrael. So it was brought up already in Chumash Bereshis numerous times. Avrama Ivri, and when they were describing Yosef, they called him Anar Ivri. And each time that word is brought down, over there the Targum says, Ivri means Ivri. He translates literally as an Ivri, which means someone who came from the Ivar Anar, came from a different place from Eretz Yisrael. But here in Chumash Shemais, when the word Ivri comes up, so the Targum translates it in a different way. So for example, when Moshe Rabbeinu goes to power and says, Hashem elekeho ivrim nikro eleinu, says the Targum, Hashem elekei the Yehudoi, the God of the Jews appeared to us. So now the Ivri changes from just the word Ivri to Yehudi, to being Jewish, because it's here in Chumash that we're no longer just reading about the family, the family of the Yavais, but now it's a new nation that's emerged, 
the birth of the nation of Klal Yisrael is starting here in the parasha, this Chumash, and it's going to continue throughout the rest of the Torah, the birth of Klal Yisrael. And Mela, that's why the Rema is, is actually brought here, because the Targum over here is telling us a very important concept. And here we start reading about the history of Klal Yisrael, and it's a history that continues to unfold till this very day. We're all part of that history. The Rambam writes, very famously, in Egeris to his son Abavram, that you should know that any time the Torah mentions Paroi, it's not just a reference to that king, the king of Mitzrayim, at the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, but Paroi is a reference to the Yetzirah, who's always there to try to stop a person from shtaying, from growing in his spirituality, in his ruchnius, in his mindus. That's Paroi. So it's not just the physical Paroi, it's the spiritual Paroi as well. And just like there's a Paroi and there's a Mitzrayim, the Mitzrayim, says the Rambam, is the goof of the person. It's the Nefesh Abahamis, which we spoke about last week, which tries to pull a person down, just like the Mitzrayim was the negative environment that Klal Yisrael was in. And finally, there's a Moshe Rabbeinu, he's the savior, he's the leader. Every person has within him also. The Yitzhah he has within him the Neshama that wants to bring the person up, the Moshe Rabbeinu that exists in our life. So we see that whatever happened then is happening till this very day, certainly on a spiritual level, but also, and, and also, in addition to that, as we said, history continues to unfold, and, and whatever happened, you know, myself, I similar the things that happened back then, they continue to happen till this very day, both on a physical and on a spiritual level. So let's take a look in the Parsha, and we can find some similarities and some thoughts and some ways that we can mechazek ourselves based on what happened then and how it relates to us till this very day. It says the Pasuk, A new king arose in Mitzrayim. And Rashi brings down, of course, to Pshatim, he forgot, or he pretended that he didn't know, or he really didn't know. al him says the Pasuk, Klal Yisrael is becoming very large. They're multiplying, they're growing, they're becoming very strong, very powerful. Their influence was starting to become noticed in Mitzrayim. And, as we see throughout history, whenever that happens, Klal Yisrael becomes too involved, they become too numerous, and they become too powerful, the Goyim take notice, and they don't like it. Says Parai, Let's trick them. Let's trick them in a way that's going to stop them from growing at such a rapid rate. It's going to stop their influence. It's going to weaken them that they won't be so powerful. And Chazal bring down, what was the uh, what was the smart way that they did it? They used trickery. As the puzzle continues, they enslaved Klai Yisrael. They didn't come to them one day and say, okay, you're going to be our slaves from now on. Start building for us. Start working for us nonstop. But it was a process. First, Pari said, you know, it's the patriotic duty. I need you to help out. We want to build these beautiful cities. And this is something that, you know, you're proud Egyptians. You consider yourself part of our culture, of our society. I need you to come help me. And Pari himself, he started working also. And being that Claudius wanted to make a nice impression, and they were patriots, so they joined. They joined, and that's how he tricked them. And slowly and gradually, the nice words stopped, and Pari himself stopped working, and then he said, okay, so you're capable of doing all this work. Okay, now you're going to do it. But this time, going forward, you're not getting paid anymore. You're going to do it for me, and you're going to be my slaves. And that's how Claudius Yisrael was tricked 
into gradually becoming slaves. And this is something that history has shown, is how the Parai, in the different generations also, that's how they were able to also catch Kalal Yisrael. If you read stories from the Holocaust. So, the Nazis, Imach Shemam, they used this concept of Havanis Chakmoloi, of tricking, trickery to uh, lie to the Yidin and to trap them and to take advantage, full advantage of the natural naivete that Klal Yisrael has. We know Klal Yisrael by Shonim, by nature, we're not suspicious people. By nature, we're uh, uh, kind people. And, and, you know, we believe. You know, we trust. We trust humanity because that's how we're trained. And that's, that's who we are. We're somewhat gullible in a sense. And they took advantage of it. They knew about it. Now, Germany, as is well known, was the most cultured society in all of Europe. They were the ones who were famous for their art, for their science, for their culture. And the Yidden respected that, whether they were Yidden who were in Germany, who considered themselves to be German Jews, Germans first and Jews second, whether it was in other parts of Europe also, but they looked up to the Germans as the most cultured society in all of Europe. And the Germans, the Nazis, Yimachshimam, who came really from the lower echelons of society, they weren't, the, they, weren't the, uh, the, uh, they weren't necessarily the most educated, but they were the most powerful, they were the most vocal and the most violent. They took control and they realized, you know what, this is how we can, can, we can uh, take advantage of the Jews. famous book called Go My Son by a Yid who was a survivor, Chaim Shapiro. And he writes, he lived in Lamja. Lamja was in Poland. And they had neighbors, non-Jewish neighbors, who they were friendly with. They were called the Hoffman family, who were of German descent. So German uh, guy living, though, in Poland. And they were very close friends. It's 1939, uh, not, not long before World War II. Not long before World War II, and uh, Mr. Hoffman goes to visit family in Germany. And he comes back, and he speaks to his friends, the, the uh, Shapiros. And he says, my friends... What I witnessed in Germany is something which I wouldn't believe could happen in my country. But the things that you're hearing about, the Jews are being beaten up in the streets, and they're being thrown into concentration camps because they had already opened up. They're being thrown into camps. They're being thrown out of schools, and, 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 they're, and, they're, and they're boy, the businesses are being boycotted, and it's a terrible danger for a Jew to live in Germany. All that you've been hearing, it's 100% true. It's coming from a guy who witnessed this with his own eyes. And Chaim Shapiro says, his parents said, it's not possible. How is it possible? Germany, such a cultured society, they're doing such things. We can't believe that the Germans are doing such things. And this is something which repeated itself all over Europe. You couldn't believe it. The stories that were coming out that didn't make sense, that the most cultured society would be engaged in such a type of behavior. And that's why they, they, they weren't, you know, because they didn't want to believe these stories. So the Yidden were taken advantage of. And, uh, and, and this, this, you know, there, there are many other stories... That that, uh, that that like that we mentioned here a few times the uh, story of Rami Kohn, famous Moyle from Bar Park, also who lived in Slovakia. <coughs> he escaped into Hungary after the the Nazis uh, occupied Slovakia, but not before he lost his his mother and and some of his siblings who were captured by the Germans. He's in the mikvah one day in Hungary. This is around 1943, before the Nazis invaded Hungary, and they're talking about you know the rumors that they're hearing from Poland and other occupied places. And they're talking in the mikvah. So one man says, you know, I heard that the Germans are telling Jews to move into ghettos 
And you know, they're not treating them so nicely. And you know, some Jews may not even have so much food to eat. And another guy says, yeah, you know, and I heard that, you know, you know, you have to work very hard and it's not so easy. And Remy Cohn, who had experienced the Nazis firsthand when they were in Slovakia, and he's seen firsthand what they do, and he, of course he heard it, he said, you know, you're talking about being in ghettos and uh, not being fed a lot of food. I can tell you actually that there's camps in Poland where Jews are put into chambers and they're gassed to death. This is what he's telling this group of men. Says Remy Cohn, one of the men there, he gives him a slap on his face. A slap that was so strong, you know, he literally flew across the room. He says to him, what are you, what are you saying these things trying to scare us or making up these, these uh, foolish stories? What are you making up these crazy stories to fool us, to scare us? It's not true. No such thing. He says he remembered that slap for a long time. But the Yidden by, by nature are not suspicious. And they took advantage of it. One more story. Elie Wiesel, the famous uh, Nobel Prize winner, famous author, writes, when the Nazis did invade Hungary and he lived in the city of uh, Siget. Siget. Not Siget, the neighborhood. but Siget, the Hungarian town. Famous Hungarian town. And the Nazis uh, occupied uh, Germany, uh, Hungary. This is in 1944. That was just a year before the war was over. Uh, it's right before Pesach. And a Nazi officer barges into their house. He wants to see, you know, where's the money, where's the stuff. He looks around, takes, his, uh, takes a tour, and now I guess he, he wrote down in his book what he saw, and then he leaves. After he leaves, so Mrs. Wiesel, Eli Wiesel's mother, says, wow, look at him. He even tipped his cap before he left. So she was so, in so, so much awe of the Germans that here you have a Nazi officer coming to your house, Two, see what you have so he can eventually rob you of all your possessions. And not only is she not being scared of him, but she's like, oh, wow, look at that. So that's the, the, um, the method of Paroi, Paroi in Mitzrayim and Paroi in recent years that, you know, we can uh, trick the Jews and, and that's how they're going to be gullible and we'll get them to do whatever it is that we want from them. Interestingly enough, the Ramashkin book that we've been mentioning a lot recently, so he says... His mother's family, they escaped from the Nazis. How did they escape? They were living in, in Ukraine. Now, Ukraine, of course, eventually was overrun by the Germans, and many hundreds of thousands of Yidden were butchered to death. But his mother's family escaped. What happened? Because when the rumors started coming across the border from Poland about what the Nazis were doing, and like we said, many Jews were doubting it, so Mrs. Rubashkin, the, the senior Mrs. Rubashkin's father, he says, you know, if you hear that a guy is doing good things for a Yid, you should be suspicious. But if you hear that a guy is killing a yid, or he's beating him up, don't be suspicious. Believe it. <laughs> he packed his family, and they escaped deep into Russia. They made their way all the way to Kazakhstan, and that's how they survived the war. But al me that's, that's something that we see here in the Parsha. You know, you got to be suspicious of when the guy are coming to you, and don't take them at face value. And, you know, oftentimes they may have uh, ulterior motives, like we see here in the Parsha. And, uh, you know, it's funny... Us growing up who never experienced this kind of anti-Semitism, so, you know, we always think about, like, how is it possible that the Yidin, they accepted it and they didn't fight back? But the truth is, today, those questions are really not so relevant anymore because we've seen firsthand how, really, societies which are democratic societies, you know, really, uh, in, the, in, the, in the face of, of uh, fear, they totally crumble. What am I talking about? I'm talking about what we've spent before, COVID. 
For example, even an example, Australia. I was reading an article by a lady who lives there in Melbourne, a firm lady, and she's describing what it was in the, the recent lockdown. They recently had their third or fourth lockdown. Now Baruch Hashem, they're out of it. But she describes what it was like, <coughs> that you can only leave your house for two hours a day. I mean, forget about going to work or, or going on a bus or anything like that. Nothing like that. You can leave your house for two hours a day. And you can only go within a radius of, I think, maximum two miles away from your house. And p- policemen are going around checking on you. And they'll ask you for your ID and they'll check where you live. She said, the streets at night, there's curfew at night, 9 o'clock. Everybody has to be back home. And if you're not home, then you get fined very heavily. There's absolutely no gatherings. Of course, the shuls were all closed. No minyanim were allowed. There was a family, two families made a shidduch, a chosen and kala. And they, or they organized a vart, you know, a quiet vart. And somebody read, somebody read it on them, somebody mustered on them. So the police came down. They fined everybody, I don't know, was it was $10,000 a person or something like that. But not only that, there were some doctors there at the vart. They're being now threatened. They're, they're going to lose their license. Can you imagine, for attending a vart. Can you imagine such a thing? Now, Baruch Hashem, they're out of the, out of the um, lockdown, but the, um, you know, they're, they're very, very much into the vaccine, so much so that there was a proposal, I don't know if it was uh, made into law, that if you're not vaccinated, you cannot get a job. How much like that? You don't work if you're not vaccinated. Now, so what does that show us? And this is... What? So quick that they, they went into someone's house and they took kids and they just, without the parents, so, you know... Just they vaccinated the kid without guessing the parent. Unbelievable. <laughs> it's, and this is considered a democratic society. This is Australia. So it just shows you that, you know, with the right propaganda, and, you know, because people there, they, they fear they, they were able to prop up COVID like it's so dangerous for every single person, men, women, and children and of all ages. So with the right <coughs> propaganda, and when the media goes along with it, people start believing it, and then, you know, crazy things, unimaginable things can happen, and nobody fights back. So, you know, with that, we can understand... Certainly, what happened in Mitzrayim, but we can even understand what happened closer to our time with Nazi Germany, also. And like we said, Paroi is also the Yetzahara. And the Yetzahara also works in that way that he, he tricks a person. He tries to create a certain image, a certain allure, and ensnare the person in his trap to cause the person to do what it is that he wants him to do. And this is true for many, many aspects of life. But I want to talk today about something called social media. You know, there's something called Instagram. Baruch Hashem, I don't have Instagram. I know many people do. But what happens on Instagram or other, other uh, social media things, uh, Facebook or whatnot, is that people tell you about their life. You know, they tell you their life story. And they show you where they go on vacation. They show you where they go out to eat. Oh, they show you are. what? Oh, they show you how exactly how perfect their life is, and, you know, and things like that. And you know, there are people who, throughout the day, they'll post on Instagram what they're doing. You know, oh, I went to this restaurant, I went to this beauty shop, I got this piece of jewelry, and you know, they're sharing their life. You know, and some people have, you know, dozens of followers. Some have hundreds. Some have thousands. Whatever it is, what happens is, you know, it creates a certain image. Like, you know, this is the lifestyle that's supposed to be meant to be. So you're meant to be going out to eat all the time. You're meant to be having a, a vacations all the time. You're meant to be going to fancy restaurants. You're meant to be shopping for the finest clothing and everything else. And this causes, this causes a certain tension. This causes a certain feeling like, you know, oh, I have to be like that person. And that really is the trap of the Yed Sahara. That's not the Yiddish way. That's not the Yiddish way. The Yiddish way is Klal Yisrael, as we said, Baishanim, Rachmanim, Goyim Lechasodim. You know, we, we, we stick to ourselves. We try to 
keep a some sort of privacy. You know, what I do in my life, if I can afford, what's that? Modesty. Modesty, exactly. Yes, exactly. Thank you, Dovi. Yeah. This is my life, you know, and I do it. You know, if you could afford a certain lifestyle, that's wonderful. Enjoy it, but you don't have to, uh, you know, pull out everybody's eyes by, by sharing it with them and create unnecessary pressure. We spoke a few weeks ago about, uh, about you know, uh, finances and living a responsible lifestyle. And there's been an article, there was an article in Mishpacha magazine which created some traction about this topic. You know, so the writer was writing, and she doesn't understand how a firm person really makes it because, you know, you take into account the tremendous expenses that we have in Baruch Hashem with, you know, with, with relatively large families and uh, tuition and camp. And, and uh, how is it that people come, you know, when they have to marry off their kids, how do they have money to make a chasana? You know, a chasana costs whatever it is, $30,000, $40,000. Where's the money coming from? She just doesn't understand it. If you do the math, it simply doesn't add up. And, you know, that, that's a good question. And, and you know, it, it's created a discussion, you know, really, the Rebbeinah Shalom was always involved and he's always helping, and that's 100% true. But at the same time, we have to realize that the Rebbeinah Shalom helps us, you know, if we live a responsible life. But if we live a life that's not according to our means, then, you know, not necessarily, that's not necessarily going to be the case. And very important not to fall into that trap that the Yetzirah is trying to trick us in. Oh, come on, come on, come on. You know, this is the beautiful life. I want you to come in just like Pari did in his time. Because once you're in, it's that slavery. You know, you're not, you're not getting out. Once, once a person falls into chayvus, into debt, you're not getting out very easily. And, and, and that can really consume a person's life and take over mamish like <coughs> slavery. That he's meshubad. And I, 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 I've met people like that. You know, they're meshubad. They're constantly, constantly borrowing from one person to pay back another. Really, with no end in sight. With no end in sight. Because, you know, they, they were tricked to start this cycle because of the allure that the Sahar made them think that, you know, if you do this, you go on this vacation which you can't afford, then you're going to have happiness and the ball started rolling from there, and really, they don't know how to get out of it. So that's one of the lessons that we have to learn in the parsha. we see from the parsha. Stay away from Pari's tricky words, from his charming words, because it's not necessarily going to work out for your good. And uh, a couple more things that we see here in the parsha. Moshe Rabbeinu comes to Pari and he says to him, I want to, you know, I, I want you to send the Yidin out, and he, he's, he really starts off by saying that, because asked, that Klaus will go out into the desert just for a few days to serve him, and then we're going to come back. And Pari says, absolutely not. I don't know who Hashem is, and I don't trust you, and I don't believe you, and you're not doing it. And he says something very interesting. He says, you know why you're, you're doing this? You know why you're asking for this vacation? Because he has too much time on your hands. Nirpim atem nirpim. You know, you have some too much downtime. And when you have too much downtime, you start thinking about doing all these things, about leaving and going on vacation and serving Hashem. Says Pari, from now on, you're not getting any more straw to mix into the mortar. You're going to have to find the straw on your own. But the quota is going to remain the same. Or in other words, says Pari, no more downtime, no more free time. You're working for me 24-6. Of course, Shabbos, we know that we're off. And that's it. Says the Masila Sisharim, what was the genius of Pari's thinking here? He says, when a person has time on his, his hands... What, what, what was the shot that uh, Pari did give him Shabbos off? Just one ring? Was, uh, That's a great question. Well, Moshe Rabbeinu told them that they're going to be more productive. If you, know, take a re- day if, if you give them a day of rest, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So he was well, able to convince them. No, no. This was all for his benefit. Yeah. Got you. Okay. It happened to be that it was Shabbos and it wasn't Tuesday. Well, he 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 said, "Why do you give them? Why do you give them Shabbos?" Yeah, that was all part of Moshe Rabbeinu's arrangement. Yeah, yeah. But says the Masil Sisharim, you know, this is really what Par is saying is 
there's no free time. No, of course, there's Shabbos, but, but if, if you take away all the free time from a person, no time to himself, then he, he's not going to start thinking about, about running away. He's not going to start thinking about freedom because his mind is constantly occupied. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have to find the material that I need to build, to build more and to do more. It's never-ending. And that's what Pari knew that's going to work. Let them work non-stop. And now there's not going to be any time for thinking about being free because they're going to be so preoccupied with the work. It says in the Sinas Hashem, this is really the Eitzah of Parai, the, uh, the Eitzah Her also, that he tries to ensnare a person, we mentioned before, getting too involved with things that we can't afford, but he also tries to get a person preoccupied with Olam Hazah in ways that, you know what, a person doesn't have time to think about you know, where he's heading, uh, you know, where, is he, where is he holding a life, you know, is he in the right direction, you know, am I at this uh, stage in my life, am I where you know, I, I, I projected myself to be, 20 years ago, or 30 years ago, or 5 years ago, am I on the right track? Where I'm supposed to be at my stage, whatever that stage is. The Eight Sahara makes sure a person doesn't have time to think. He doesn't have time to reflect. And therefore, the person is kind of just, just going with the flow. Life goes on, life goes on, and the years are flying by, and the person's not thinking, and that's exactly what the Eight Sahara wants. So the Messiah says, you know, we got to, again, learn from Parai, learn from Kali Yisrael, that no, you know, we're not going to be uh, ensnared and in this constant... You know, you work to live, to live, to work, constant cycle where there's absolutely no time for self-reflection. Self-reflection, everybody has, you know, they know how they work, and what, you know, what, what, what gets them to, uh, to tick in a ruchni in a, stick in a away, whatever it is, without going into detail. Time, time for ourselves. Not every moment has to be filled, and whether it's work, or whether it's leisure, you know, there's constant stimulation. We spoke, some, we spoke once about uh, the allure of the smartphones and what they do to a person, constant stimulation, you got to watch this clip. You got to take check the news here. You got to do this, and that's that's Pari. That's Pari. Drag the person in, and say, "Okay, there's zero downtime." And when there's zero downtime, then there's zero reflection. So that's another ace that we got to take care of. And, and as we said, you know, the the Pari of the recent generation in Germany also, you know, the survivors. I, I, I've read they said when the war ended, they they didn't know what to do with themselves. So much so. There was a story I read where one survivor said he was he was disappointed he was upset when the war ended. Now, can you imagine such a thing? You're in you know your mom's in the in the death camps. How could he be upset? But what happened was they they took over the mindset of the Jews so much to the extent that they lost the power to think. And now all of a sudden, you know, there's no one telling me what to do. There's no one telling me how I should live my life. There's no one telling me what time to get up. There's no one telling me, you know. I have to make these decisions on my own. And, and they, they lost that ability to think for themselves. So, so it was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to live life now? You know, this is really a, a, a very terrible, you know, a very terrible thing. Baruch Hashem. That's what they say. Yidin always, anytime there's a problem, they always say, let's go back and try it. Right. Why would you want to go back and try it? Right. Because the mentality yeah, was. Right. They, they exactly. They, they, yeah, yeah, they, as they, bad they, as it is. That's right. all they want to think. Just, right. just go back. That's, yeah. Right. As David said, very good. As, as hard as it is, but yeah, I don't have to think. And, and you know, in a way that, that's easier. And Hashem, you know, the survivors, most of them, they were able to rebuild eventually, you know, with all the trauma, which is, which is remarkable in and of itself. But the point is that this is the Yetzirah. It's Pare, trying to bring a person down. And finally, one more thing. We know that a slave... We, we, we mentioned the Rabashkin book. He, he speaks about, you know, when he first became prisoner... So they tell you, you know, you got to change into the prisoner clothing. And they give you a number. 
They give you a serial number. And he says at that point, the person loses his individuality. You're just the property of the federal government. They're going to tell you now when to go to sleep. They're going to tell you when to eat. They're going to tell you what to eat. They're going to tell you what you could do. They're going to tell you what you can't do. And you're no longer your own person. You're 100% under their authority. And that too is what Pari tries to do. That he tries to make the person into a slave, lose his individuality, lose who he is, and, you know, lose his koyach of, of his special uh, his special flavor, his special abilities that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave to each and every one of us. How do we try to take that away? You're all just slaves, and you know, you're no longer individuals. But says the Torah, no, these are the names of Kal Yisrael. A name represents the person's essence, represents the person's individuality. And the Torah delineates every single one of the Shvatim to tell us that as much as Pari tried to make Klal Yisrael into slaves and take away their individuality, but in the eyes of the Rebbeinah Shalalem, that's never ever going to change. Every single person is unique. HaKadosh Baruch Hu has special love for every single Yid. No matter what situation he's in, no matter how difficult things are, you are special, you're unique, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu loves you and he appreciates that which you bring to the world. Every single person has a name. Every single person has a task. And as Rashi points out, it's like diamonds. A person has diamonds, so he's always counting them. Because it feels so geschmack. I have this diamond, I have that diamond. So to HaKadosh Baruch Hu is constantly counting his diamonds. Klal Yisrael. And that's why the Torah goes through again a repetition of the names of each and every one of Klal Yisrael. And that we have to remember that is also part of what Pai tries to do to a person. What he wants to do to the person, take away who you are, but we have to remember that we stand up to Pari and we're not going to fall into that trap. Each person is unique, each person is precious. I'm just going to conclude with a beautiful story. Hashem, in, in, in recent years in Lakewood, there's been a, a tremendous proliferation, a proliferation of yeshivas because Kanainahara, the island there, is growing so much. So many, many yeshivas, every single year you hear about, you know, Numa Sifta is opening up, base Medrash opening up, Girls' schools opening up, and there's a need for it. But with that, you know, with the Bar Hashem, with the explosive growth of Klai so also, you know, it comes with the with the risk that you no know, a, a youngster, a boy or a girl, he might start feeling, you know, I'm just I'm just a number, you know, a number among these many thousands of guys just like me. We're all alike. We look the same. We act the same. How am I unique? So there's one Bar he's in a Masifta in Lakewood, and you know these these thoughts started getting to him. Yeah, like you know, huh? who am I? I'm just a number. And it caused him to lose some of his cheshek in learning. It caused him to lose some of his cheshek in learning. So it's night Seder. Instead of staying in Seder and learning with his chavrusa, he decides he's going to go to the local nursing home over there and he's going to go sit there in the lounge. They have a television that's on. He's going to watch whatever it is that the, uh, the old men and ladies there are watching. Okay, so he starts sitting there in the lounge. He's watching TV. And there's a, a fellow there, a resident in the nursing home, an older fellow who's in a wheelchair. And he notices this Bachar's here. He notices him one night, another night. Finally, after a bunch of nights, the old man comes over to him, he introduces himself, and he says, young man, what are you doing here every night watching television? You should be doing, you should be in yeshiva learning. So he, he tells him his story. You know, I consider myself a number. I don't consider myself unique. There's so many just like me. The old man unrolls his sleeve. And he shows the Bachar on his arm, the number. The number that the Germans engraved on him when he was in the concentration camps. He says to the boy, this, considering yourself your number, is what the Germans wanted. 
that each of the of us won't be indiv- we won't be individuals, we'll just be a number. But no, you're not a number, you're a person, you're unique. You have a tafkid that only you can do, that the Rebbeinah Shalom wants from you. Go back to Yeshiva and learn and shtaig, because what you can do, no one else can do, which is exactly what happened. He went back to Yeshiva, and that's the lesson that we have to remember from the parsha. Because Baruch Hu loves everybody. Everybody has a unique tafkid. David appreciates everything that we do. Thank you so much, and a good Shabbos.